everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and we've got part two of our interview today with EFF's Cory Doctorow. We'll be uh, finishing off our fascinating discussion about the current battle between Epic and uh, Epic Games and Apple, the computer company, over their 30% take on all software purchases through the App Store. Um, and as we discussed last time a little bit, we'll talk about more today. It's not an uncommon thing. It's actually, this that practice goes way back. Anyway, it's it's a very interesting topic. There's a lot of nuances to it. And uh, Corey gets right to the heart of the matter, as always, and really gives some great perspectives on this. So anyway, today is part two of that. If you missed part one, you should definitely go back and check that out first so that a lot of what we talk about today will make sense. But today is a special day for a couple reasons. First of all, the big Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons book giveaway is over. It ended uh, Saturday night, just before midnight Eastern time. And I am about to announce the winners. As you recall, there were 15 winners. There were uh, 10 people who won a free PDF digital copy of the book, the ebook, basically, and five winners who are going to get paperback copies signed by me. So on Rafflecopter, where I did this, uh, they give me the name and the email address, and they don't really give me the state or, you know, precise location of where everybody is coming from. However, they do give me the IP address. So I was able to look up the location uh, of these people, at least based on their IP address. Of course, if they're using a VPN or something strange, it's going to be wrong. But uh, anyway, I did the best I could here. So let me announce the winners of the 10 eBooks. Maurice W. from Apex or Cary, North Carolina. John P. from Newport News, perhaps Nor Norfolk, Virginia. Chuck B. from Apex, North Carolina. Andrew from Providence, Rhode Island. Victor S. from British Columbia, Canada. Adam from the D.C. area that kind of was all over the map with that IP address. I'm not exactly sure where that was. Uh, Wendy from Alberta, Canada. Jeffrey L. from Kansas City, Missouri. G. Kufus? K-U-H-F-U-S-S from Chicago, Illinois. Though for some reason, Rafflecopter thought it was from Canada. And Yevhenny P. from Ukraine. That was by far the farthest away, well, farthest from me, <laughs> winner uh, in the entry of the contest today. Uh, and here are the five signed copy winners. I'll be sending you a signed copy of the book. Phil S. from Akron, Ohio. D.O. from Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. Craig M. from New York City. Debbie S. from Durham, North Carolina. And Cassandra D. from Irvine or Riverside, California. Congratulations, everybody. You are winners. I will be reaching out to you shortly. Uh, look for an email from me. Uh, it'll come from Carrie at wawaseemedia.com. That's W-A-W-A-S-E-E-M-E-D-I-A, wawaseemedia.com. That's kind of my parent LLC company. So if you don't get something in your inbox today, check your spam or uh, stamp, spam folder just in case. And if I announced your name and, and you still didn't get something from me today, send me a note at that email address. The PDF copies will go out today. I'll send you a special download link. And for the paper copies, I'm gonna, uh, I'll need a mailing address. So when I uh, email you guys, I'll ask you where you want me to ship it and what, if anything, you would like me to write on the inscription. And I will get that mailed out as soon as possible. So congratulations to all the winners and thank you for everybody who entered. And I said today was special for two reasons. And the second one is purely personal. And that is I am retired as of today uh, after 15 years at Cisco and 27 plus years in the telecom software industry as a software engineer, I am cutting out. I am doing my own thing. And uh, so it's, it's a big time for me. So what am I going to do? What am I going to be when I grow up? Those are great questions. And I will be taking my time answering those questions over the coming months. 
but I'm not going to sit idle. I'm definitely going to be doing something. Uh, I've got some other books I want to write. And generally, I want to, you know, work for myself at this point. I'm not, I'm not going to completely do nothing. Uh, so stay tuned. I will be, I'll be letting you know. Okay, let's get to our interview. Uh, before we do, a couple quick things. First, again, like last time, there is some minor cursing in this. I mean, it's nothing that would actually be bleeped on television today. So, but, you know, it's not normal for this thing. So if you're a little sensitive, fair warning. And there's a couple terms we talk about that we uh, don't really define. So one of them is sideloading. Uh, it's one of the main differences actually between Google and Apple in this whole scenario. And that is on Android, uh, if you go and disable a particular security setting, you can actually download and install applications that are not from the Google Play Store. Doing that, installing apps that were not approved by Google is called sideloading. And another term that Corey throws out is called a universal touring machine. And that is T-U-R-I-N-G, named after Alan Turing. And if you've seen the movie Imitation Game, then you know who I'm talking about. Or if for some reason you're into the Enigma cryptography from World War II, that's, he's often associated with helping to crack that. But a universal Turing machine is kind of hard to define in 25 words or less. Uh, you might just take a look at that on Wikipedia, and even that's going to be a little bit confusing. But it's sort of an abstract way to describe a computing machine. I don't want to call it a computer because that's kind of a loaded term. But it's the guy was a mathematician and basically did some really interesting work uh, that way predated what we think of today as a modern-day computer. So it's really, uh, if you're interested in that kind of technology at all, it's really quite fascinating. So I'd, uh, that's, that's all I'll say for now, but just that's, that's what that is in reference to when, when, we, when uh, Corey brings that up. Okay, and I think that's all the setup we need, so let's get right back to it and pick up where we left off with Corey Doctorow. <laughs> Let's look at Apple first, just from a devil's advocate perspective. So what Apple's saying, of course, is some of the things you've already said, but they're also you know, like, look, we've, we've, we've given you free software tools. We've given you free software development kits. We've, you know, done some degree of automated security testing on your behalf. We've managed this massive distribution system. We've spent gobs of money on marketing to, uh, to get you a massive customer base. So if 30% is too high, like, what is that? What is that worth? What would, what would be a reasonable fee for that? Well, you know, like I won't claim to be the world's biggest booster of markets. Right. <laughs> we do have a way to f we do have a way to find that out. Right. right. There is like an actual way to find that out, and it's called a market. <laughs> right. It's like like uh, it's not it's not I've named my price now you pay it. Right. Like it is that there are competitors who offer competing prices, and those price signals and demand signals are aggregated as customers shop among different vendors that make different offers, and 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 then we find out what the price is. Right. Like. So look, I write books. It's a lot of work. Mm. Not all of my books have sold really well. Most of them have, but a couple of them sold really badly and didn't recoup and they're not making royalties for me. If that book sold 5,000 copies instead of 50,000 copies, should I be allowed to charge my customers 10x? Because otherwise, <laughs> how could I make a living? Like, you know, Apple is um, not a charity and neither is Epic. And so Apple owes nothing to Epic, and Epic knows, uh, owes nothing to Apple, except for what the market requires of them. Like, that's the whole basis of capitalism. Now, like, I'm all for arts funding. I do think that markets often fail. Mm -hmm. I think that they tend towards oligarchy, whatever. Yeah. But the idea that this company that is worth a trillion dollars and listed on the stock exchange thinks that the way that prices are set is by having only one firm that's allowed to be in the market and it tells you what the price is, is bizarre. 
right? Like that has never been the way markets worked. You know, Apple, Apple like reverse engineered the entire file format of Microsoft Office and non-consensually created a compatible Office suite called iWork. Mm -hmm. And Microsoft has a lot of highly paid engineers who spend a lot of time making that uh, suite. And it was expensive to build, not least because it was like accretive and full of cruft and backwards compatibility mm -hmm. was really hard. And then they created a fork that had to be supported. So they imposed costs on Microsoft that Microsoft would have to bear because their users would get iWork documents that were supposed to be compatible <laughs> and they would complain if they weren't. Right. right. Does does Microsoft get to tell Apple, sorry, you don't get to do that? Like who would who would start a monopolistic operating system vendor if some fruit flavor company from Cupertino <laughs> could come along and knock off its file formats? You know, like that is not Apple's problem. I don't think it should be Apple's problem. I don't understand why Apple thinks that their cost structure should be Epic's problem. So, okay. So Google charges the same 30% for the Google Play Store, yeah. but, the, but they do have a way for a user to yeah, side, side sideloading. Is that yeah. is that all the difference in the world? And is that is that all that Apple needs to do here to make this okay? Well, that's all they need to do to make it okay with me, at least to a first approximation. I don't think it's all that it would take to make it okay with Epic, but I'll I'll, I'll tell you what Epic's other theory is, and it's not a it's not a crazy one. It is that the excessive selling power, not buying power. So the problem with the DRM is the is like the excessive buying power, but here you have excessive selling power and actually mixed with excessive buying power of both app stores, irrespective of side loading, simply because of their dominance causes prices to go up that somewhere priced into the fact that the only way to distribute software effectively is through what these two little gateways uh, and that both of these gateways charge a high toll means that consumers pay higher prices. And 40 years ago, we used to have a lot of monopolistic things that were considered illegal, right? Uh, 40 years ago, just being big was itself a presumption of guilt. Like the FTC at one point had a, a policy that if you had a market where there was a dominant firm and they remained dominant for more than, say, five years, they would just automatically open an investigation <laughs> to them on the grounds that there was probably something sketchy going on. Wow. Companies were not allowed to buy their nascent competitors. They couldn't buy small companies. Uh, that they thought might grow up to threaten them someday. So like, um, you know, Google wouldn't have been allowed to buy AdWords. Mm -hmm. Apple wouldn't have been allowed to buy the 90 startups they bought in the first quarter of 2019. And they weren't allowed to merge with their major competitors. So, you know, the, all of those mergers that we've seen, mm. Salesforce oh, and, God, yeah. and uh, Oracle and whatever, right? Uh, Sun, Sun going to Oracle, that kind of thing. And they weren't allowed to create vertical monopolies. So if you had an app store, you couldn't also sell apps in it. In the same way that if you had a freight company or a rail company, rather, you couldn't also move freight on your own rails. Because the customers you were charging for freight would be at a permanent disadvantage. And so the market would become, it was, it, we called it market structuring, mm -hmm. right? We would structure markets to create competitive outcomes on the grounds that competition was a good in and of itself. Now, 40 years ago, Ronald Reagan fell in the thrall of a Nixon criminal named Robert Bork, who was denied a seat on the Supreme Court for his role in Nixon's crimes. <laughs> uh, and Robert Bork had this radical theory of antitrust that said that the only time we should enforce antitrust is when there is an anti-competitive action that leads immediately to higher prices for consumers, like in the short term. Hmm. If it's in the long term, who cares, right? But in the short term, and it's called the consumer harm standard, and it is literally the only thing left. 
in American antitrust hmm. practice. Now, the laws remain the same, but the precedents and the guidance to the DOJ have all changed. Uh, and, you know, a new president running a new DOJ could change all of it at the snap of a finger just by changing the guidance to the DOJ, although hmm. the judiciary might block them. But, but you know, the laws remain unchanged, but the practice is very different. There's one thing that the DOJ cares about, and it's short-term price raises. Hmm. And I think that they have a pretty good case that the anti-competitive ways in which both Apple and Android have used their gatekeeper status has resulted in not just winnowing out tools that are um, insecure, nor merely winnowing out tools that are bad or distasteful, you know, fart apps, <laughs> but also in, in suppressing the creation of price competition among tools, particularly the, the payment processing, obviously 30% is a really high payment processing charge, yep. but also in the, in the subsequent uh, sort of aftermarket of the, of the devices. And that this is the literally the last thing the DOJ cares about when it comes to monopolies. The only thing that they will bust you for. Do you remember when the, there was this price fixing scandal with Apple and the publishers because they wanted to force Amazon to charge $10 for an ebook? Mm. And Amazon wanted to buy the ebooks for, for whatever the wholesale price was, $6, and then sell them for five and lose a dollar <laughs> on every book as a way to force everyone who was selling them for 10, which was the price the publishers wanted to set, uh, out of business so that Apple would be, the, the publishers would be totally dependent on Apple. Mm. And Apple and, and um, the big big six publishers, which are now five big publishers back when Random House and um, Penguin were separate when there were six, they illegally colluded and got, you know, pasted by the DOJ for it because of this, because it was price fixing. Mm. And it's the, it's the, only thing you're not allowed to do and it's a little bizarre right it's like these things where it's like you have these war crimes where like they you know bomb hamlet after hamlet and they there's an infinite civilian casualties and whatever but like someone takes a selfie of themselves pissing on a corpse and it's like that that is the one thing that we that it's that's a bridge too far and the fact that that same person also was part of a an effort that killed you know thousands of civilians right. is neither here nor there it's the pissing right. on the corpse and like i'm not defending pissing on right. corpses i'm just saying that it's a little weird yeah. that of all the things that we make a big deal out of like that there are these other things that are you know that the corpse doesn't care right the corpse is dead right yeah. the, the, like the the market doesn't care if it's been distorted through price fixing or through other monopolistic conduct. It just it just cares that it's become less competitive. And that's where that's where they have a good point, right? And it's not a point that I care about as much as I care about with this DRM stuff, because I think that in the absence of DRM, that you would see the competition that would make it harder for them to establish and maintain this gatekeeper status. It might not be perfect and we still might need subsequent enforcement, but but you know, at least to like we have historically gotten a lot of mileage in tech out of compatibility, you know, whether that's like all of the different Unixes that emerged yeah. from AT&T not being allowed to market their own Unix because they were under consent decree because of their own monopolistic conduct <laughs> right. or, or, or Phoenix, you know, cloning IBM's ROMs and uh, IBM not going after them so that uh, because they were worried about their own antitrust enforcement because they, they had just come off of a 12-year antitrust adventure. And so Phoenix was able to supply ROMs to Compaq and Dell and Gateway and so on. We got lots of different kinds of PCs. You know, that... The ability of compatibility to take these massively dominant firms with powerful network effects 
and just knock them off their perch, right? Like like Facebook making a tool that allowed the users uh, who wanted to go to Facebook because it was objectively better, but whose friends were still all on MySpace to give a bot their MySpace credentials and have the bot go and scrape their MySpace inbox and put it in their Facebook inbox right. and then let them reply it and autopilot it back out to MySpace. Mm -hmm. That kind of compatibility, it turns walled gardens into corrals full of prey animals, right? <laughs> where, where like you can just, oh, you know, where, how, how would I ever find new social media users for my new startup Facebook? Oh, I know MySpace has conveniently organized them in a searchable database, mm -hmm. right? Like that is a, that's a radically different proposition. Yeah. And if we take away, you know, all of these companies, they rose to prominence by doing this kind of competitive compatibility. And all of these companies, now that they have attained dominance, want to deprive potential competitors of the same tactics that they use to correct concentration and ossification in the market. And I'm all for reinvigorated antitrust. And I think we need it. I think we need it in every domain. I think we need it in publishing and records and movie studios. I mean, think about it, right? We, we've got like five publishers four movie studios, three record labels, two beer companies, and one major eyewear company yeah, in each of those right. industries worldwide, right? right? Worldwide, right? We definitely need it. But tech, I'm not a tech exceptionalist per se, but tech is a little different because universal touring machines and universal networks have this co compatibility element where it is much harder to make a computer that won't play your app than it is to make a record player that won't play your record. Mm. So when you were on Twit, Mike Elgin was on there and he actually proposed uh, something that I don't think you had a chance to respond to. So I'd like to give you a chance now. And he said, what if all the major Apple developers got together and just went on strike? Basically said, look, none of us like this. You know, Epic's right. We, we want a better deal or we want to be able to do our own, uh, our own stores. We're not going to develop for your platform anymore. Would that wouldn't require regulation. Uh, that, that would just be kind of a pseudo market solution. I mean, wh why hasn't that happened? What is that? Or is that something that we should maybe be pushing for? So boycotts can be effective, but they, they have not a very good track record, right? The, and they, they tend to work best when they're in concert with civil disobedience and with both political and uh, normative actions, right? So if you think about like the, the bus boycott, uh, in the civil rights era, right, or the taxi taxi boycott, or rather the bus boycott, right, where they they boycotted the bus because of segregation on the buses. Mm. It wasn't merely boycotting; it was marches, it was demonstrations, it was running illegal taxi services, it was all of the above, right? They didn't just they didn't just withhold their dollars, mm. and this is a a crisis in our contemporary conception of how change happens, which is that forty years of neoliberalism has taken the position that citizenship is unimportant and that uh, consumership is the, mm. is the best weapon that you have. Mm. And so, you know, if you don't like Apple's terms, you shouldn't buy an iPhone. If you don't like Flint and your water being poisoned, you should buy bottled water or get a house somewhere else, <laughs> right? Right. right. The, consumerism has a role, right? And, and as a consumer, you have the right, for example, to expect that that your citizenship will translate into democratic accountability for firms. So if they make deliberately uh, defective products or dangerous products, that you will have a remedy 
through your through your democratic citizenship and not merely through you know your role as an ambulatory wallet that <laughs> right. that creates or withholds price signals right but they they have to work in concert and the problem with both monopoly and monopsony is that by definition you cannot solve them with purchasing mm-hmm. right? right shopping right. your way out of monopoly capitalism is a contradiction in terms. Uh, there's a there's a term, and you saw this on the Twit thing. If you if you saw that, there's a there's a term out of labor economics from the poultry industry mm-hmm. called chickenization. Yeah, I love that. And, and and the country, the U.S. has three major poultry processors, and they've divided up the country the way that like the Pope divided up the New World between Spain and Portugal, <laughs> where they've each assigned themselves a territory. It's also like Comcast and Charter does; mm, they, yeah. they never compete head to head, right? So they've assigned themselves a territory, and if you're a chicken farmer, there's only one processor that is close enough for you to send your birds to them. And as a chicken farmer, you are notionally independent in the same way that as a software vendor, you're notionally independent. But the poultry processor tells you what kind of coop you have to build, who can fix it, how it has to be maintained, which lights you install, when the lights turn on, when the lights turn off, which veterinarians you can use, what medicine they're allowed to use, what feed you use, what your feeding schedule is. They perform uh, non-consensual A-B splits where they'll tell one farmer, oh yeah, no, you're on a different feed schedule. Oh boy. Um, But if the birds all die, the farmer is an independent contractor. They fill the barns, they fill the coops with their own sensors that tell them everything oh that's God. going on. And they, they have oversight into the entire market. So they know because they see all the chickens sure. coming in what, what's going on in the market. And the one thing that they don't tell you is how much you're going to get for your birds. They tell you that when you bring them to them. Mm. And they titrate the money drip so that it's exactly enough money for you to go back and do it again, but not enough money for you to get ahead. And that's chickenization. And, you know, chicken farmers are among the leading categories of people uh, committing suicide, right? Mm. I mean, it's a it's a brutal way to live. And they're all forced over to binding arbitration and uh, right. vows of, of silence, course. non-disclosure agreements. All of these are features of the Apple contract. Hmm. And yes, there is another shop you can sell to, right? You can sell to the Google shop. But one of the things about the literature on monopsony is that a, a firm that has as little as 10% of the buying power in a market can absolutely distort the power of the suppliers and force suppliers yeah, right, into yeah. sub submarginal rates, right? Where they actually, um, they're, they're caught in a loop where they end up spending, charging less for their products than it costs them to make it and eventually get forced out. Right. It's like Walmart like and McDonald's and, you know, when they, yeah. you know, they get to set the market rates for that because they're big enough, they can. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the problem with excessive buying power is, is it really, and it's really under theorized. We spend a lot of time, thinking about excessive selling power and not nearly enough thinking about excessive buying power. And, you know, speaking as an author in a market with five publishers in it and with only one audiobook distributor, like excessive buying power has a lot more to do with my, you know, whether I pay my mortgage than excessive selling power. And, you know, we see excessive buying power being reinforced through things like binding arbitration agreements that prevent sure, class yeah. action suits, right? But also the increased use of non-compete agreements where workers who uh, make assistant manager at a fast food restaurant now typically have to sign a non-compete agreement that once they leave the firm, they're prohibited from working for any rival for three years. Oh, my goodness. Uh, thankfully, this is not in California where non-competes are illegal, right. which is good news, right? Yeah. Because the... They, you know, the Silicon Valley is called Silicon Valley because Robert Shockley won the Nobel Prize for inventing silicon transistors, opened the first chip shop here in Silicon Valley, 
went crazy, became a eugenicist, oh, spent geez. all of his Nobel money offering black people br- br- bribes to get sterilized. Oh, my God went super paranoid, started wiretapping all of his employees, uh, <laughs> never built a chip, and his eight top scientists quit and founded a company called Intel. Oh my. And they were only able to do that because non-competes are not enforceable <laughs> in California. Right? Did not know that so, story. It's a crazy story. So, so you know, excessive buying power is a, a genuine evil. And what you see with, with this Apple lawsuit with this epic lawsuit is a company that is concerned about excessive buying power that can only make its case in terms of excessive selling power. Hmm. And that is why the case looks so weird, right? Sure. Is that it like the the thing that we need to have a robust competitive market that is fair and that provides the widest variety of things that respond to the desires of the public and also provides a, a shared prosperity among suppliers so that they can sustain themselves making the things that their customers love is a, a non-monopsonistic market. Hmm. And techs like Alpha and Omega is not just monopoly, it's monopsony. Platform is a synonym for monopsony, hmm. right? I mean, you know, from the very earliest days, I mean, remember that like in the Microsoft antitrust case, one of the most uh, damning piece of evidence, evidence was the internal Microsoft slogan Windows ain't done until Lotus won't run. <laughs> okay, so I, I know you got to get going because I uh, so I want to sure. respect your time. But there's one more thing I'd like to yeah. bring up, and that is, as I usually like to do at the end of these things, is a call to action. So what, what can you, what would you recommend uh, that people do if they if they've gotten riled up about this, if they want to uh, make a difference? And you know, obviously, the uh, we're gonna cut, we're gonna say donate to people like EFF because like literally right now they're in the process of litigating something that might take down Section 1201 of the DMCA. Um, yeah. So what do you recommend people do? And actually, if you know the status of that uh, lawsuit, I'd love to hear that sure. too. Yeah. Just just in brief, you know, Section 1201 of the DMCA is plainly unconstitutional, uh, but it's been a hard. T- we've had a hard time getting standing to get in front of a court to argue that because every time we have a good plaintiff, the people who made the DRM run away, they just stop threatening them mm. uh, because they, they don't, they know that if a judge ever hears the case, it'll be overturned. <laughs> they just want the chilling effect. So we've got a good plaintiff this time. Uh, Matt Green, who's a famous cryptographer at Johns Hopkins and Bunny Huang, the, the MIT electrical engineer who broke the Xbox are uh, both suing the U S government for a declaration that a thing that they're doing, that that um, activities that they need to do that comes into conflict with the DMCA won't be a felony. And you are entitled to ask a court to make that determination. If, if you are about to embark on a course of activity that might get you put in jail, you can you can make a judge tell you whether or not that would put you in jail. You have to have like a bona fide intention to do it, but they both do. And so that case is ongoing. It was stalled for literally years on procedural mm. matters, and now it is inching its way forward. That happened just before the plague hit, and then everything <laughs> slowed down again. But but we're actually moving on it in a way that we weren't um, for like three years, where where the judge okay. was just considering a motion to dismiss for three years and then finally rules, right? So so that's good news. The uh, In terms of what you can do, you're right. Giving to EFF is really important. But I think that if you if you want to understand how we solve this structural problem, you need to look at structural remedies, right? In the same way that the way you sort out climate change is not through individual action per se, but through taking the individual action of getting involved in organizations that are arguing for structural change. Mm. And I think we are at an important moment here because, you know, 
people who play Fortnite are pissed off about monopolies. But so are people who love professional wrestling. Because mm. there used to be 30 leagues, and now there's one. And the guy who owns it, Vince McMahon, has reclassified all of his athletes as contractors, taken away their medical insurance. They're dying in their 50s of work-related mm. illnesses. And they're begging on GoFundMe for pennies to help them die with Just dignity. horrible. So... Pro wrestling fans are pissed off about this. People who wear glasses are pissed off because one company, Luxottica, owns every eyewear company in the world. People who drink beer are pissed off and whiskey and people who care about oil and climate change and finance. They're all pissed off because all of these industries are so concentrated that they are corrupting their legislators. We just had the FinCEN leaks this weekend as we're recording that that looked, uh, it was a leak of the U.S. Treasury Criminal Enforcement Division's own internal reports on suspicious activities, suspicious activity reports, and they found $2 trillion worth of fraud that the U.S. government knew about and failed to act on oh my God. from five giant banks, HSBC, J.P. Morgan Chase, Deutsche Bank, uh, Standard Chartered, and New York Mellon. And, you know, the reason that the these foxes who are guarding the yeah. house aren't taking action as they're foxes. And we have a, <laughs> uh, we have a, a system dominated by foxes yeah. who ensure that only foxes are ever appointed to, to guard hen houses. And so my point is that there are lots of people who have common cause, but they don't know it. They think that they're angry about wrestling. What they're really angry about is monopolies. Mm. And in the same way that there used to be a time before the coining of the term ecology, where there were people who cared about owls and other people who cared about the ozone layer, but they didn't realize they were on the same side, even if they thought, you know, well of one another. But the term ecology took a thousand causes and turned it into one movement mm. with a thousand ways to get involved. Yeah. Mm. We are here on the brink of a, a, a new kind of politics, a politics that is uh, uh, motivated and mobilized by the idea of pluralism by the idea of self-determination. And after all, like that's why we love technology, right? What technologist didn't get involved because they sat down and used a tool and realized that it gave them all of this power, that it let them control their own lives, yeah. that it let them reconfigure things around them. Self-determination is a glory, and it's you know the founding principle of this country. And so we are on the brink of this self-determination movement, this pluralism movement, that is going to involve people from all over. And there is an election on, and I work for a 501c3, and I can't tell you who to vote for, but I can tell you that there are candidates in both parties who have made this their election issue. Mm. And you can give them money, and you can phone bank for them, and you can ring doorbells for them, and you can vote for them, and you can tweet about them, and you know, if you're still using Facebook, God knows why, you can write about <laughs> it on Facebook. Because this is an issue whose time has come. Right? This is an issue that has finally come to the fore, but it hasn't quite gelled yet. And if you make this point when you talk to your friends about wrestling, that they have allies among those of us who wear glasses and those of us who drink beer, and start to plant that seed, that is how we'll build a movement that will actually make change. Very interesting. Thank you so much, Corey. I, that's why we're bringing you on here, because you've got so much to say and, and some really uh, amazing ways to say it. So thanks again for coming on the show and uh, educating us today. Oh, my pleasure. I hear you're talking to my colleague, Lindsay, tomorrow, too. So please yes. give her my best. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Big thanks again for Corey to come on the show. I always enjoy having him on. He's got such so many interesting ideas, and, and he has such a marvelous way of explaining them. 
This topic is actually kind of related to the, the previous interview we had uh, with him about adversarial interoperability. Uh, that's another great one. If you had, if you missed that one, that would be another great one to go back and listen to. If you want to get involved, obviously donate some money to the EFF. Every little bit count, every little bit counts. And, uh, you know, and from a political standpoint, we get the election coming up, uh, you know, be sure to back candidates who are trying to fix these broken markets. We've, you know, capitalism has gone a little bit of a muck in this country, uh, because, you know, the powerful and rich folks in this country have put their thumb on the scale. So it's not really an open market like we think it is. We do have systemic issues that need to be addressed. So uh, that's an important thing. You might, you know, whenever you have town halls or whatever, be sure to ask your representatives about those things and support, you know, support these issues when they come up. Corey's new book, Attack Surface, will be out very soon, uh, just in a week or two, I believe. And uh, you can get it directly from Macmillan Press. I got a link in the show notes for that. Or I'm sure if you go to crapound.com, you can find a link to it there. Uh, but he's also doing a Kickstarter campaign for the audiobook, which I signed up for. You can sign up at various levels. He's actually got, I think, at least three audio, three different audiobooks going uh, on sale for Kickstarter. You can get just the one, or you can get a bundle of many because it's kind of a, as he said, it's not really a trilogy, but it's a related set of characters and a related universe: Little Brother, Homeland, and now Attack Surface. Uh, so, you know, Corey is really big. If you can't tell, on fair use of copyrighted material and just hates DRM or digital rights management, uh, and so he doesn't want to, you know, do this through Audible, which is like the only game in town now for audiobooks. Uh, so he's trying to strike out and do, do it on his own, and he's doing it through Kickstarter. So I'll put a link to the Kickstarter campaign in the show notes. But if you go to Kickstarter and, and uh, kickstarter.com and search for attack service, I'm sure you can find it that way. Corey did mention that I'll be, quote-unquote, talking to Lindsay tomorrow. Actually, turns out from when that was, it was we got delayed a little bit. But I have indeed talked to Lindsay Oliver as well as Jason Kelly. Um, my second only three-way interview they're from the EFF as well, and we had a really actually very important discussion about student surveillance because of COVID-19 and all the remote learning going on, uh, particularly in college campuses, but even K-12. through You know, this whole notion of having to remotely proctor an exam to keep kids from cheating on these closed book tests that require, you know, that you regurgitate facts it's become truly draconian. And so uh, it, if you've got any kids in school, you, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, but it has other implications too, that this same kind of technology is also used with employees now for some employers that just don't trust their people to do what they're supposed to do when they're working from home. So it's, it's really an important discussion. That will be coming up shortly. I've got a news show next week. I've got plenty to catch you up on. Uh, and then after that, we'll get into the interview with Jason Kelly and Lindsay Oliver. As part of the news show next week, I'm going to catch you up. There's been several developments um, in the Apple and Epic battle uh, since we did this interview with Corey. There was they've some group of 10 different companies, Spotify, Epic, uh, Match Group, who does the Match.com stuff, ProtonMail, actually, uh, and some others got together and created this Coalition for App Fairness. And they're trying to basically, you know, band together and do a kind of a PR campaign against Apple. Uh, over this whole 30% thing. And there's, you know, some judges have done some ruling on some of these motions and, and things in the lawsuit. So I'll catch you up on all that next week. Two more quick things before we go. And that is, we've got a huge, huge consequential election coming up in the United States. No matter what side of the fence you happen to be on, you really, really need to vote this time. Do not sit this one out. We, you know, this is not the time to sit on the sidelines. I know that certainly after, you know, watching that debate, I, that was, that was painful, like in my heart to watch, to watch that debate. 
but it's just it's never been more important. We've got to make our voices heard, and we've got to, uh, you know, we we've got to you know register our opinions for you know where we want this country to go. So anyway, please please vote. If you haven't registered, you're probably running out of time. Make sure you get out and do that now. If you think you're registered, double check. Uh, a lot of places have stricken some people from the voting rolls uh, without really telling them. In fact, my daughter was one of them, so she had to re-register. So uh, check your registration uh, and and then go vote. However you need to vote, absentee ballot, mail-in ballot, uh, in person if you if you can. Uh, vote early if you can. That's probably less crowded. And there, there's lots of great websites for this, actually. Um, and I'm just going to give you just one. Uh, EFF, is, I'm sure, has some sites on this. But if you just go to vote.org... Uh, so easy to remember. Uh, they've got all sorts of links there to help you with everything I just mentioned. And one more thing, given given what's going on right now and that you know this pandemic has affected so many people, but now it has actually infiltrated the executive branch of the United States, the, the White House and many staffers and the cabinet. This is a prime time for disinformation. Be very, very wary of anything you see uh, especially on social media, doesn't matter who they say the source is, you know, who they say they're quoting, always go to find the original source. If you find that, you know, it makes you angry or makes you upset, makes you disgusted, makes you scared, uh, if it triggers you in those kind of ways, that should be a red flag that it may not be true. If it's, you know, the saying is if it's too good to be true, it probably is. Well, if it's too bad to be true, it also probably is. So before you repost anything, before you forward anything, please, please verify the source, you know, make sure that there are some other reputable sources that are also reporting the same thing. Um, if they, you know, if they say that this came from something one of the classic ones we talked about early in this whole COVID thing was there was an email going around that was supposedly from Stanford University with all these things about health checks, and it was just totally bogus. Well, actually, here it was partially bogus, which is even worse. Usually, when there's some sort of a kernel of truth in there, it, it's actually more powerful because it makes you believe the things that aren't true. So, please, please, please be extra wary right now and do your research. I actually wrote a blog on this, and it was in my newsletter. Uh, so, if you're on the newsletter, you already got that last night. But if not, you can go to my blog. You can see it there, too. There's some interesting links there that you might want to check out uh, with some great fact-checking sources, some some unbiased fact-checking sources, which seems like a shouldn't be a contradiction in terms. But even today, it can be. So check that out. There's some really good resources there. And, you know, that would be a great thing to share with your friends and family. Also, if you have not seen it yet, I would highly recommend you watch the Netflix special, The Social Dilemma. Yeah, it's a documentary. It talks to some really interesting insiders from social media land uh, about how they manipulate people and and scarf up lots of data so that they can further manipulate people. Um, uh, woven throughout the whole thing is this fictional story that kind of drives home some of the points. That's a little bit over the top, uh, but nevertheless, as a whole, it's well worth watching. Um, so definitely check out the social dilemma. Okay, that's enough for me. Uh, take care, everybody. Obviously, wear masks. It's it's so important. Don't go out in public unless you have to. Stay away from big groups. If it if you have to do it, do it outside. There's just a lot of simple, basic stuff we could all do, and if we if we could just kind of all get on that same page, we could knock this sucker down. So as always, stay safe out there, and don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>